Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 9th of May 2012. For newcomers, I always start off by suggesting you make good use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and on the website you'll find all the other sites I own. And they all carry audios for download, they all carry transcripts in English for download. And if you go into Alan Watt Sentinel.eu, you'll find transcripts in other languages to choose from. And remember, too, uh, that uh, you are the audience that bring me to you because I don't bring on advertisers as guests or sell anything apart from the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. So if you want them, and I hope you do, because you don't understand the past or the cons that have been pulled right up to the present time, you'll never understand what's really happening today, how we got here, and where it's all supposed to go. You have this mass confusion of competing parties, apparently, just giving their their spiels out on the media, and it's nothing but confusion. You understand how it really works, the system, how powerful people got together over a 100 years ago to take over the world system. And that means all resources, including people, by the way. And you're a human resource now, aren't you? And all the water, all the foods, all the minerals, oil, everything across the entire planet, and run it in a, in a, in a scientific way. They, they see themselves as sort of benefactors of humanity, the elite, you see, because they already, back a hundred years ago, owned most of the, the wealth of the world. And they fund the universities, they set a curriculum, along with the grants they hand out, and they use academia to the extreme to turn out generations of sort of middle class uh, revolutionaries for to bring in, to finish off this system for them, and, and thinking they're going to get a, a more juster society. It works out very, very well. So, they also create the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, big armies under foundations that lobby government, and they often get governmental money to put into their pot as well to change the society. But it's not democratic because you don't vote any of them in. That's the bottom line. So uh, I'll touch on that tonight. So if you want to keep me going, buy the books and this at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use personal checks or international postal money orders, or you can send cash, or you can use PayPal. Straight donations are awfully, awfully welcome. And across the world, go Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal once again. Now, we go through a system in our lifetime, or a part of a system, because the system is never-ending. They have plans made sometimes 50 years, 100 years ahead. And that's the communist system had the same thing, 50-year plans, 100-year plans, 20-year plans, all for different parts of this big change we're going through. This is the time of change. It's a century of change. And that's why Obama was given the slogan, change is good. Uh, just the idiots didn't think to ask him what changes he had in mind. So it, it's, a, it's an academic phrase too. 
and, and the world socialists used it as well. This is a time when the experts were to rise to the top and start governing the public and uh, in place of the old religious orders, old silly belief systems, they say, and bring in a secular humanistic society where we'll obviously just see the wisdom of having educated people uh, be uh, commissars over all of us and direct our lives from cradle to grave. That's what it's all about. And... Um, and a, a democracy, they say, is too cumbersome. That's what the Club of Rome, the big think tank at the United Nations, for the United Nations said. It was too cumbersome. It would never work. And too many competing factions all demanding cash and, and different laws pushed and etc. Technically, they're right because, you see, they created so many of these competing parties in the first place just to create the muddy confusion. And um, now that they have it, they want to go ahead and, and simply go into what they call governance, you see. And they've got all these different partnerships with private organizations and corporations and they sign treaties through the United Nations. We really don't need the governments as we have them now because your vote means nothing. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix. I've always mentioned Professor Carl Quigley, who, he was really up there with the big boys. He, he wanted the same kind of system as they did. He was a member of their big organizations, including the Council on Foreign Relations. And, uh, he taught many people at the State Department and higher levels of government for their roles. He trained them. But, um, he did put out two books that literally told you how this uh, secretive organization, put it this way, CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, which is just the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, but now they have CFRs across the world in every country because we're all on board together, you see. But uh, they, they run all the media, especially, and they have think tanks, so many think tanks, you can't count them all, working on different aspects of their agenda. And... Um, and these guys will put their agenda in different articles across all mainstream media because all mainstream media, the top guys, are members of the Council on Foreign Relations. So Quigley exposed this in, in one of his books, and uh, Macmillan broke the, the, the actual printing plates for them after when he, when he found out what he, he actually let out the bag, that they had this massive goal, and they were behind wars. They said wars were necessary to bring uh, about this unified world, which this elite would rule, you see. Again, it ties in with Rockefeller, who was way up there, the head of the CFR for a long time, and he said that it was far better that bankers and uh, and academia, intellectuals, run the world rather than leaving it to the, the natural course of independent free nations. So it's not a democratic society they're bringing in. But what they did too was set up all these fronts, these front foundations, really, really uh, places where they, they, they put money through. That is a tax break for the big bankers who are behind it all because there's massive international bankers who formed the Royal Institute of International Affairs. They didn't have little local banks. They, they were the guys who lent to nations. And then their sons took over. And they thought that uh, they would cause wars and conflicts and out of that they would get... Uh, treaties signed, and eventually they, they take over the world, which is happening now. Of course, you're seeing it uh, out in the open. But um, they, they set up foundations as philanthro- uh, philanthropic fronts, basically, 
uh, charitable institutions, so they wouldn't be taxed. So the money they were making from their banks, they just didn't pay taxes. They simply put them into their foundations and they were tax-free. They were let off tax-free. And then they, they formed all these non-governmental organizations, thousands of them across the world, uh, all working towards the same goal, which appears to be socialist or, or even communist, which is the ideal system which the bankers agreed they wanted across the world, where everyone would be trained scientifically by scientific elites and government agencies from birth to death, and they'd have their ordered society. No more of this democracy stuff or what you want to be when you leave school, what you want to... No, no, it's, it's basically school to work, what the communists used. So it was often confused with communism, so much so that the Rees Commission uh, back in the 50s was put out by Congress to investigate the tax-free foundations, and they were told quite plainly, and you can read about this, and, and there's even Norman Dodds up on YouTube, if you can find it again, where he talks about it. He was part of the investigation, and he, they were told by the CEOs of these private foundations. These are trillionaire uh, foundations, multi-trillions. Uh, they were told that their job was to bring in the Soviet system and, and, and blend it with the West very seamlessly, and quietly that people would adapt into this new system, not quite capitalist, not quite socialist. Exactly what Lenin said, too, about the big plan. So you've got this confusion here where people can't tell what they're reading half the time. Uh, and, and emotions come into it, too. You have all the various wildlife groups and, and uh, uh, ecologists. Now you have all these different ologists everywhere, you know, uh, where the money is because this is a time for, for uh, looking after the environment and weather and all the rest of it. But you've got to remember that so many of the people who are outright communists also uh, went into these organizations when communism got a bad name and kind of fell away. It didn't go away at all. It morphed into the environmental movement. Now, lots of the followers don't know that. Followers for anything will always be followers, and they're always duped by the wise guys. And... Uh, the wise guys always put leaders in that they're very good, good psychopaths. They can read their followers like a book, and they tell them what they want to hear. But the followers, of course, comprise an army. You, meet, you need numbers, you see, and then you get them all to sign different uh, protests, and then you hand it in the government and demand things. Well, what happened in Canada recently was that Stephen Harper, the prime minister, uh, got rather upset about one of the, well, at least one of the foundations, probably more, uh, that are worldwide. And they protested the tar sands project, of course, and the, and the oil or gas being shipped off to the U.S. And, uh, and it, well, technically, these organizations are political organizations. If they're political organizations, they should be basically registered as political organizations, not as environmental organizations and such like. You see, that's a con of the foundations. They use other, other things to get political agendas through, or social agendas, actually. They don't play politics. Uh, I've always looked at the Council on Foreign Relations books that they put out, and they say we're a non-profit, non-governmental organization, uh, and we're not involved in politics. And then you see all the top politicians who are members of it, and you might think that they're talking about nothing but politics, but they're actually talking about social agendas. They don't, see, politics is the game for you all to believe in, you see. But they, they certainly make agendas and carry them through. And the same with these big foundations, you see. Uh, to do with environment. This article here comes out, it's a bit uh, wishy-washy, and, it, and it's, it's not too direct, but it says, um, blackout speak out, blackout speak out. It's a co- coalition that's just come out with all the environmental 
groups because of what Stephen Harper said. Black out, speak out. But first, white out, it says. It's so Canadian the way it's written. It says that the Green Charitable funding battle has only just begun, with every sign that the activist community is set to treat it as a life-or-death conflict, leading the Green forces against the evil Harper regime as a new coalition cleverly named Black Out Speak Out. It's got the link to their site, too. Uh, backed by the Sierra Club, a very poor guy, Sierra Club, you know, Environmental Defense, which is our Environmental Defense Fund as well, Greenpeace, the Suzuki Foundation, West Coast Environmental Law and others, Blackout Speakout aims to block Ottawa's planned changes to Canada's environmental protection legislation. A parallel objective is to stop what it refers to as the government's attacks on environmental charities. Uh, and because these are, these are political and social forces, you see. Uh, with their own agendas. Since the Harper government clearly aims to adjust the balance of power and environmental regulation, we can certainly see the reasons for a new round of political activity. The effort is to be carried out by means of as yet unknown but darkly foreshadowed on, the, on their website. What is more striking, however, is the Green Movement's rush to head off scrutiny of its charitable funding. Because why should other countries donate millions? and to organizations that disrupt the goings-on inside another country, like Canada. But we're doing the same thing across the Middle East, anyway. <laughs> Striking but not surprising, says charities are where the money is that keeps green, green activism alive. And it's awfully lucrative if you get into it. Some of Canada's charities are also getting into protecting themselves from government attack. Imagine Canada, an association of Canadian charities, wants Environmental Minister Peter Kent to name names to back up his charge that foreign money is being laundered through Canadian charities to fund the political campaigns of environmental groups. So it's really over the terminology, they pick the terminology rather than the fact of what's really going on. In a letter last week, Mr. Kent, to Mr. Kent, Imagine Canada CEO Marcel Luzier said the minister's allegations amounted to suggesting criminal activity and should be withdrawn. So it's nitpicking, really. The fact is, millions and millions, and even billions over the years, are put into Canada through these outside organizations, these foundations based in other countries. And um, as I say, when you see who they are, Sierra Club, I mean, that's hardly, a, a, you know, uh, a little tin can round the door type collection agency. Environmental Defense Fund, Greenpeace, the Suzuki Foundation, West Coast Environmental Law and others. And plus they get cash from governments too, most of these people. So as I say, that's where, where they are. That they are political uh, activation groups and activists. So they, they should be labeled as something else, especially with the cash they've got. Definitely. I mean, you know, this is again, is what I mentioned earlier, how the big foundations are going to take over the world. And through philanthropy, remember they said a long time ago, even Weishaupt said this, they take over through philanthropy, you know, benevolent dictatorship, basically. Benevolent ones. They said, you know, they're out for your own goods. Now stop eating that food. Now you're too small. You're going to eat this and stretch and all, all that kind of. I mean, this is the, the craziness they bring in where super government is in charge of every facet of your life. Stop eating that. Can you imagine these folk at the table? Don't eat that. Eat this. Well, that's terrible for you. That's bad. Ever been with folk like that? Of course you have. They're control freaks. But as I say, when they start butting into each other's countries through foreign funding, you've got something else going on, obviously.
No one wants to destroy the environment. Remember these guys too, uh, all these groups, they want to bring us back to total deindustrialization, and they've said it on all their websites as well. David Suzuki, by the way, uh, I'll put a link up tonight, you'll hear him talking about the Japan disaster. And here are some of the points brought up and some commentary. This is what he said. It's great that Japan reduced its power consumption by 25% since the disaster. Maybe they can reduce it even more. Perhaps power consumption is down because thousands of people are dead and not using power. And many people were without power for extended periods of time. And some of them have been living in tents. Then he says Japan is now totally dependent on oil. And then the Japan now on, on the oil cartels. But when the Japanese government finally decides to move to renewable energy, like geothermal and wind power, how are they going to turn out anything there on a factory level on wind power? They'll be able to do so because the Japanese... Listen to what he says. Because the Japanese people are compliant with their government, unlike North Americans. That's your great David Suzuki, Zikaiol. It says, this crisis is a huge opportunity in Japan. All this folk getting, it's a huge opportunity. Yes, the opportunity to, to de-industrialize and destroy Japan, just like North America. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a commentary by someone else on what he said. But that's what he's inferring. To, to de-industrialize, uh, Japan. Because that's what they want at the top. The same as America. Total de-industrialization. Now look who profited from the total de-industrialization of the Americas. It's almost finished. It was the big international, multinational corporations that wanted it. And the big bankers international who, who, with government, set up the WTO, the GATT Treaty, and made it legal to ship all the factories over to China and get the taxpayers at home to pay for their transport and setting up over there. See how they all work together, eh? And David Suki says, people are just maggots. I might put that link up again tonight. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. I'm just reading a letter that someone sent me about David Suzuki, as I say, and, and he did say that, uh, and, and the, the link, the video was up there when he was a student or a, or a young professor at university, and he says people are just maggots, he says. And uh, this is a, a globalist for you who wants deindustrialization across the world. And that's what he said about Japan. He says, this crisis is a huge opportunity. What he means by that, according to this writer, is to deindustrialize. Because they don't want an industrialized world, you see. They see themselves sort of floating in Roman togas over the world, advising us all how to live, you see. That's how it's going to be. And probably with a big uh, dominatrix behind them with whips and chains just to make sure you comply. So, I mean, I'm not kidding about that. They're, they're, they're cults in an extent, and uh, they're well-funded uh, because um, they, they do, these, these foundations employ fanatics. You've got to be a fanatic to get the job. And uh, the live lives are pretty well luxury too, by the way. Incredible funding. When you get put up as an NGO, and uh, you can literally, a tax-free foundation, you can literally award yourself any paycheck that you want because there's no laws to say that you can't give yourself 10 million a year or five or whatever it happens to be. You know, they have office towers and everything. So deindustrialization is really their, their point. And, and David Suzuki thinks, you know, this is a great opportunity. To, to sort of remake Japan with windmills and they probably start sending off paper fans again like they did before industry and that'll be the, that'll be the only industry they'll have. And then they'll all be happy. And as I say, it's, it's just astonishing to see how 
things were couched with all these big organizations. And um, here's an article here, for instance, from Britain. It says, How Climate Change Has Got Worldwide Fund for Nature Bamboozled. It says, The World Wildlife Fund has traveled too far from its original aim to protect endangered species, because now they're all politics. They just lead social agendas. And it says, What a strange body is the World Wildlife Fund, formerly the World Wildlife Fund, now the Worldwide Fund for Nature, you see has become these days. It's the largest, richest, and most influential environmental lobbying organization in the world. It's a tax-free foundation, you see. Originally set up in 1961 by guess who? Oh, I've talked so much about Julian Huxley. Julian Huxley, the guy at UNESCO, who said they'd eventually give a common curriculum across the world, brainwash the children, and they'd teach humanity that he's not so important after all. They'd knock him off his pedestal and down amongst the animals. Then they would run us, all the specialists like himself, the way it should be run in the world. Also Prince Philip, uh, Prince Bernhardt and others, for the admirable purpose of campaigning to save species endangered by human activity. It has morphed in the last 20 years into something very different, more akin to a multinational corporation. The World Wildlife Fund Empire now delivers a, a very hefty chunk of its income from partnerships with governments. See, what, what, what's government doing with partnerships with them? Because they get part of their funding. We also put in tax dollars to these, these non-democratic institutions. This is or the EU, the European Union Fund, or actually multinationals such as Coca-Cola and Sky which likes to use its iconic panda logo, originally designed by the naturalist Peter Scott, to give an eco-carrying gloss to their commercial activities. The chief reason why it's so greatly increased its wealth and influence is it's joined other lobby groups such as Friends of the Earth. These guys, you go on their website, they'll tell you they want to totally deindustrialize and cut the population drastically. And Greenpeace and pushing uh, to the top of his agenda that most fashionable and lucrative environmental causes, the battle to halt climate change. See, this is, see it's just uh, policies by using, well, hot air. But this has led to World Wildlife Fund into some rather odd little tangles, such as those which have recently emerged over its activities in Tanzania. Much of its work there is carried out under the United Nations climate change policy known as REDD, RED+. Plus reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, which is part of the United Nations £17 billion Fast Start program. Britain giving £1.5 billion is that program's second largest contributor after Japan. Last November, Prince Charles, as president of the WWF, World Wealth Fund, UK, flew to Tanzania to hand out Living Planet Awards to five community leaders involved in the WWF projects around the delta of the Ruvigi River, which holds the world's largest mangrove forest. Part of their intention has been to halt further damage to the forest by local farmers who have been clearing it to grow rice and coconuts. This is because the mangroves store unusual amounts of carbon, which is CO2, viewed as a main contributor of global warming. Another WWF program is a delta, uh, in the Delta to find a way of measuring just how great a threat release of that CO2 might be. Shortly before the prince's arrival, it was revealed that thousands of villages had been evicted from the forest, their huts and the paddy fields torched and their coconuts' palms felled. This was carried out by the Tanzanian government's forestry and beekeeping division, which the World Wildlife Fund has been working. So they, they just burned down all the people's houses and stuff to please the WWF. And, of course, get these big 
money thing coming in in the big droughts. But Stephen McKeary, the head of WWF Tanzania, was quick to insist that the WWF had never advocated expelling communities from the Delta and that the evictions were carried out by government agencies. Of course, because the agencies are getting all these cash coming in from the big foundations, eh? As at this point, however, two American professors intervened. They just published a study of the Delta in an environmental journal called the REDD Menace, Research and Protectionism in Mangrove Forest. It's highly critical of the so-called for, uh, fortress con- conservation policy advocated by WWF under REDD, uh, claiming that it was seriously damaging the traditional life of those local communities which had been sustainably farming and fishing in the area for centuries. Although this provoked a vehement repost from Mr. Makiri, who claimed in turn that the paper had seriously damaged the reputation of staff who had been working on the WF Red project, a new four had already erupted over claims that some of the staff had been falsely claiming expenses on a massive scale amounting to more than £1 million. Big cash. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix talking about foundations and the big NGO armies they have which constantly uh, lobby governments. Just a lot of money to lobby governments, you know. And they're tax-free foundations. And the guys at the top are living in, as they say, in Hollywood, fabulous lifestyles, you know, with the cash they get. Anyway, they're so eagerly trying to get off this, this mess they've done in Africa, where they basically gave money to the government, and the government burned out the people, the peasants that were living there for centuries, <laughs> because they don't want them working around, you know, these sensitive areas. It could be carbon sinks. You know, it might not be, and it may be carbon sinks. Who knows? Anyway, it says... Um, they fired a lot of the, the, the ones who were on the take at the top of WWF and all that stuff. It says, how surprising that the World Wildlife Fund is so anxious to defend its good name since so much of its income, which is £55 million a year in Britain alone. That's just in Britain, right? Not, it depends not just on the 5 million members it claims worldwide, but on the support it gets from governments. Nowhere is this web of top-level influence more striking than in the role of the WWF now plays in the workings of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. See, they all work together, eh, for this big change. The body whose report, supposedly based only on gold standard science, as fool's gold, of course, had been the chief driver behind worldwide concern over global warming for 20 years. When a series of scandals blew up two years ago over the more alarmist claims made by the IPCC in the 2007 assessment report, the two which attracted most headlines were shown to have been based not on peer-reviewed science, but on campaigning material put out by the World Wildlife Fund. <laughs> One of these, a prediction that the Himalayan glaciers might all have melted within 30 years, was sourced from a WWF paper based only on a magazine interview with an obscure Indian scientist who was subsequently employed by the research institute run by the IPCC's chairman, Dr. Ranjendra Pachuri, who's, who's a, a train engineer. <laughs> He's a real specialist. Eh? And says, the other, a claim that, that drought caused by global warming could lead to the destruction of 40% of the Amazon rainforest was revealed, but my colleague, my, but, but based on research that had not been concluded with climate change at all, but with the damage being done to the forest by logging and fires. 
Since exhaustive analysis led by the Canadian author Donna Laframboise then revealed that nearly a third of the 18,531 sources cited by the report had no more scientific provenance than press clippings, student theses and claims by activist groups, amongst which none was more prominent than the World Wildlife Fund. But worst was to come in her recent book on the IPCC, the delinquent teenager who was mistaken for the world's top climate expert, Laframboise, shows that from 2004 on, the World Wildlife Fund deliberately set out to recruit contributors to the IPCC's next report to its Climate Witness Scientific Advisor panel. The result was the WWF, WWF Climate Witnesses contributed to two-thirds of the 2007 report's 47, 44 chapters, including every one of the 20 chapters in section on the impacts of climate change. So, you see, it's not science. This is, these are social agendas and political agendas to change the entire planet so that we run by, you know, philanthropists and people who know better than anyone else. You, know, you don't know your own thoughts, you know. You don't know your own mind. And, and you can't just go and do silly things for yourself. You've got to have managers to, to tell you how to behave, and they'll train you how to behave. Behavior modification, you see. So... It says here, it says uh, the IPCC has been infiltrated wholly and entirely compromised because it's in bed with all these change groups and they all have their agendas and they'll make any story up to get it through. And the sky is always falling. But uh, they're into other things too, to say, like getting folk burned out their homes in Africa and stuff like that. And, um, and they can bribe any government. You understand the finances of God's fantastic. But who's at the top of these big foundations? Well, you've got Rockefellers, Fords, Carnegie's, a whole bunch of them. There's hundreds of them. All top banking boys as well in international corporations. Yep. That's what runs it. And as I say, now, of course, they're into every government. You can't make a move without having to consult these self-appointed SARS. You know, you can't make a move. No government can. And here they are drafting up treaties and getting politicians and leaders to sign them. Do you vote in these foundations? Do you vote in these NGOs? No, you don't. But why do they keep calling it democracy? You're living through an agenda. And why are the governments constantly pampering them and pandering to them? You see, it's a big agenda. There's only one agenda. And everybody, everybody at the top is in on the same agenda, folks. That's why. Remember, I put these links up tonight, too, at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Also to do with uh, an article I read uh, about just a week ago or so uh, on Katerina Chileva. It says, Utah woman has son stolen by the DCFS agent despite declaration of innocence by court and social services. And that's by Activist Post. And it's an update on what's happening. And uh, as I said the last time, Really, and when the end of June comes, I think it is, or the beginning of June, they have to go to either a higher court if, if the child is not given back to Katerina, or they give the child back one or the other. That's how it's left hanging in the air. And we, I've mentioned the, the person, too, who is really the main character behind all of this. She hates to lose, obviously, Amber Ruder. She's very rude indeed. Strange that too, it's almost, see, Ruder is like a form of red from, from old languages. So you've got amber and red, there's no green in there, eh? Uh, so uh, you understand that Miss, Miss uh, Ruder um, is very nasty 
uh, if you went into these court, very, very nasty. It wouldn't matter what, what you were, she, she thought or, or claimed or whatever. Very nasty, as if you're a, a mass murderer. And, and technically, I really think that people like her should have psychological examinations themselves to see what on earth is behind them, snatching these children. When courts and, and specialists says, you know, this child has not had any abuse whatsoever. What's in her, what's her problem? Is it simply ego that she must always win? Is it just simply hate families? It could be that too. It could be that. That's a, a political agenda with certain sectors of society. But anyway, I'll put this up tonight and it's a good write-up. It says, but what happens to an individual within the system when a system sets their sights on a child and even their fellow state agents refuse to go along with the game? And it mentions this, the case. If a recent case in Utah is anything to go by, apparently it doesn't matter. You still have ending having your child forcibly removed from you and you still have little hope of seeing him again after he's taken. If the case officers declare you have done nothing wrong, you still find yourself childless. Remarkably, even the judge himself orders your son to return to you. He still remains under the watchful eye of the state, so long as one of its bureaucratic uh, or bureaucrats deems it the appropriate decision. You understand that, that they're taking power unto themselves, and they do it over time until it's, the common law becomes... Common law really is something you accept because you do nothing about it. You acquiesce to it. Then it becomes law. So it's time you start to put it in, you know, nip it in the bud and um, stop it. Stop it right off the bat and, uh, and go back to the courts and say, look, look, judge, you know, nobody's listening to you. Uh, these little agencies here are ignoring you. So, so what are you going to do about it? You know, and that's what it comes down to. So now it says, well, well, a case such as this should make the headlines if for no other reason than the brazenness of certain officials. Not a word has been spoken in the media with a notable exception of, well, and then it gone to me, exception of me, uh, who have mentioned this on April the 30th. It appears that during the course of a nasty divorce proceeding, Katerina Jaleva was accused of sexually abusing her son, who remained unnamed for obvious reasons by her ex-husband. According to Jaleva, the motivation behind this accusation was her ex-husband's desire to avoid child support payment in light of a recent bankruptcy. Regardless of the reason behind the accusation of her, Jaleva has served with a protect- protection order. By the way, you've seen even the movies now. It's generally the woman who does it, not the guy. And she's advised often, in the movies versions, uh, if you tried, you know, uh, a sexual abuse, no, I never thought of that. Oh, you got to put that down too. So lawyers actually advise clients, you see, try that. It's very, very common in this wonderful, you know, above board thing called the legal system. And that's what lawyers do. Anything at all to win a case. But, um, as I say, this has been thrown out by the, 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 the court because there's no evidence whatsoever. And all the experts on child abuse have said, nope, no evidence of it at all. But this uh, Amber Ruder, uh, who's in charge of this sort of family service thing here, uh, it just doesn't back off, you see. Although she didn't turn up the last time because her name was mentioned on the radio by me. And um, But we'll see what happens here. It's ongoing. And if this, as I say, comes up to into June, they either have to give the child back or find some reason to Keep the child, which means they'd have to create new evidence, you see. And um, anyway, Amber Ruder is the ad litem, the guardian ad litem. And um, she's quite a nasty character as far as I have heard. It says, uh, Ruder is tasked with the representation of a minor child in cases such as these. Essentially, Ruder was appointed as legal guardian of Jaleva's son during the protective order investigation process. 
This is because only one day after her son was returned to her, Julia's ex-husband filed yet another protective order against her. This, Julia claims, was done at the behest of and with the aid of Ruder. The new PO was set to last a period of five months, with the PO signed by a judge. The police immediately came to Julia's house and removed her son from his home yet again. You understand, all I have to do is, okay, we'll try another charge, you know. And immediately, the, the cops don't say, is this right or wrong? There's no, you know, they just grab the child and they're gone. So, that's what they did. They came in when they were having dinner and grabbed the child from her arms. Thus, the process of investigation began anew with more cases, officers and detectives interviewing Julie and her son. Like the first round of investigations, all those involved with the noticeable exception of Ruder determined that there was no evidence of child abuse. In fact, the DCFS, Department of Children and Family Services, investigator of the Special Sex Abuse Unit, Carly Eccles, even wrote a, a report exonerating Juliva. Eccles closed the case due to the fact that the accusations were unsupported. Yet according to Juliva, although the reports of the detectives and investigator Eccles are in the public record, they were dismissed as hearsay at the first hearing because the individuals themselves were not there to testify. This was an oversight made by Geneva, who was representing herself with very limited resources and knowledge of the law, as opposed to the state, which responds to a prosecution as if there were no bottom to this pit of finances, which there isn't because it's all taxpayer the grab, isn't it? So, it's a quite a long story in here. I'll put it up tonight for you all to read, to see what's happening. It's happening across the whole of the U.S. and other countries as well as these organizations give themselves more and more power. And I should say, too, I've met lots of these people who work in these organizations where they grab children, and they're all, they've all got certain problems, put it that way, you know. And um, I could certainly go on, but I think you all know what I mean. I'm sure you've met some of them yourselves. They certainly don't, don't like families at all. They really don't like families. They're the type of people, too, who are walking in the street and see a, 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 a father holding the, a, the, the daughter or son's hand in the street, walking along the street. They'll think there's something suspicious in that. I'm not kidding you. They obviously have personal problems themselves. And they get attracted into these jobs. And also a lot of them, too, who work with the children in, in the homes, for instance. Um, there's massive abuse goes on in their sexual abuse. Because, again, there's certain persuasions that have taken over the whole system. Remember, uh, where they go for you. If you're a pedophile, you go for your target. Where they're going to be. Boy Scouts, Girl Guides, whatever. And into uh, sort of homes where you hold these children. This this boy isn't actually in one of those, those homes at the moment, but um, let's hope Katarina gets him back shortly. But uh, people should also check up the, the Amber Ruder's case files and see her history. Get a good, to see how many families she's destroyed, you know, and, and find out why. And, and maybe find out too, and even say, you know, if you're going to go to, if you've got so much power, then you should, should have a psychological, an independent psychological evaluation, which should be available to the general populace. That's what I think. I really believe that. That should be done for them all. But that's the world we live in, isn't it? It's the destruction of the family unit. And they don't want uh, children being brought up with, with uh, their parents at all, really, you know, a lot of them. And... Uh, uh, this nonsense with the underwear bomber, as I say, is hardly worth talking about. It's such a made-up piece of nonsense. And it says, um, a man who Al-Qaeda hoped would carry a plot to blow up a U.S.-bound airline liner is a mole who infiltrated the terrorist organization and thwarted the attack. So so he's an agent who worked for the CIA, for goodness sake. And I'll put this up uh, tonight as well, but I'm, I'm not going to give much credence or time uh, or anything else. 
about this nonsense. You understand that they've had so many people complaining about the groping by the TSA and other, other countries as well, and x-rays and all the rest of it. They have to say, oh, see, there's actually people out there who have strange underwear. Well, I'm sure there are in this day and age. I'm certain of that. But the fact is that they've got to create something to, to validate why they're doing this to you. And it, this is how they work. This is how they work. But it does say here in this article, the secret operative was working for CIA and Saudi intelligence handlers in Yemen, etc., etc. So nothing, it said this thing could never have gone up, uh, blown up in the first place. Uh, and I'm sure he looked the last one. He was watched the whole way across. And um, it was like, they probably told him this was a test. Because they do that, they get guys to go through to, with uh, fake explosives and stuff. I've read articles before. Sometimes they forget, actually, about guys at the other end picking them up. And the guy will leave it on the plane or he'll take it home. One guy actually took one home to, to, to his, his house in, in England. And then he got raided uh, and he was charged until they found out, no, he was, they'd smuggled the stuff, stuff in the airport on his, his luggage to see if, if the staff could catch it. And they didn't. Ah, this happens all the time. This one here is definitely a, a plant, it's, it's obviously. Because the US military is, is, they've got trainers in Yemen at the moment who are recruiting these guys. You know, do you want to be in the CIA? Yeah, I think that's cool. I've seen all the movies and just wear these undies and get on this plane. We'll catch you at the other end. That's how it works. And tonight too, I'm putting up a, a link. It's called UK Terrorists Attack Birmingham. They're aerial terrorists, by the way. And uh, uh, they're dumping chemicals from high altitudes over the, uh, an area uh, south of Birmingham. Uh, great photographs. I actually collect hundreds of these aerial photographs over here above me as they go back in loops and all the rest of it around overhead and poison the atmosphere as they, as they pretend they're talking about geoengineering and other things. They've been doing it since 1998. But I stopped taking the photographs and I said, what am I going to do with all these photographs? You take more photographs every day and towards the evening too as they just keep mum about it and say nothing. You're not supposed to notice. And the general probably have been trained that they won't listen to anything unless the general media says it on television by a popular, well-known TV host, you know, regular newscaster. That's what Brzezinski said in the 70s. Eventually the public will be unable to reason for themselves. They'll wait for the media to do it for them. That's happened, folks. So I'll, I'll put this up, as I say. Also, what's up with that? It's got a whole lot of shaking going on about some of the top uh, gospel choir singers of the global warming agenda who've abandoned the old climate crisis. This is, this is the old climate crisis hymnal. Uh, it's quite well worded, actually. And it talks about James Lovelock, the father of the Gia theory. He'd made millions off this nonsense, too, of course. But the entire Earth is a, sim, a single living system, and, and he predicted that uh, continued CO2 emissions would bring about calamity. We're supposed to all die, and I think it was... Oh, it was years ago. It didn't, it didn't happen, but it didn't matter. Before this century is over, billions of us will die in the few being pairs of people. That survive will be in the Arctic where climate remains tolerable. And of course, the last century came and went, and then billions of us didn't die at all. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix and 
I'll continue with this article here, though. But it, it talks about uh, the gospel choirs abandoning the old climate crisis hymnal. And it talks about James Lovelock, who made a fantastic fortune of, of selling his books on coming catastrophes and massive death and so on. And it says recently, however, he obviously cooled on global warming as a crisis, admitting to SN, MSNBC that he overstated the case and now acknowledges that we don't know what the climate is doing. We thought we knew 20 years ago. That led some alarmist books like mine. Uh, it says because it looked clear cut, but it hasn't happened. He pointed to Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth and Tim Flannery's The, the Weather Makers as other alarmist publications. The 92-year-old Lovelock went on to note that climate is doing its usual tricks. There's nothing much happens or happening. Yet even though we're supposed to be halfway towards a frying world now, he added, the world has not warmed up very much since the millennium. Twelve years is a reasonable time, yet the temperature has stayed almost constant. It's actually dropped, to, whereas it should have been rising. Carbon dioxide has been rising, no question about that. Well, carbon dioxide follows a warming period, and even when it cools, it'll continue. It's, it's a kind of lag effect, very much of a lag effect. And then it goes down again. Then Fritz uh, Wacher Enolt, it's called Wacher Enolt, socialist founder of Germany's environmental movement who headed the renewable energy division of the country's second largest utility company, has recently co-authored a new book titled The Cold Sun, Why the Climate Disaster Won't Happen. In it, he raises a man-made blizzard of criticism, charging the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, with gross incompetence and dishonesty, most particularly regarding fear-mongering, exaggeration of known climate influence of human CO2 emissions. And uh, Varen Holt's distrust of the IPCC's ob- objectivity and veracity took root two years ago when he became an expert reviewer from, for the report on renewable energy. After discovering numerous er- errors, he reported those inaccuracies to the IPCC officials only to have them simply brushed aside. Stunned by this, he asked himself, is this the way they approach climate assessment reports? He came to wonder if the IPCC reports on climate change were simply sloppy. And it's got the full article. It's quite interesting, actually. You should read it. I'll put that link up tonight as well to see how they really work. See, it's, it's an agenda. They don't, they don't want facts. They even said, those articles I read last night actually says facts don't matter. Facts don't matter. They, they have their fancy uh, computer models. They can put in uh, any disaster they want to come up, and, and they, they get the results. But facts don't matter is what they said. As for a social agenda across the world, remember. And um, as I say, it's just stunning how this, is, this massive organization across the world, interlapping inter, uh, NGOs, foundations, the, the parallel government, as Thatcher called it, because she became a part of it, because all ex-politicians and prime ministers become part of it too. So they're all working together, lefties, righties, for this totalitarian world system. That's what it is. It's time, you see, for the big change where specialists uh, take care of you your whole life long. They'll even decide if you're born or not. Do we really need you? If they don't need you, you won't be born in their wonderful utopia. You've got to read the old books by the eugenicists, folks. If you don't uh, read them at all, you won't understand where this mindset comes from and how they'll use any excuse. Even bizarre ones like dinosaurs farting, for instance. And equating it with, well, your food supply of today. That's what it's all about. Any excuse will do to terrify you, to give up your rights, and let them guide you the proper way, because you're too stupid to do it yourselves, according to them. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God, your gods, go with you.